if Barcelona does get the victory here today and avoids the sweep against Real Madrid, Ray, that does put Barcelona maybe not in firm control, but in the driver's seat. Well, all the stories will be about to unfold, Phil. We don't know. I still don't think this is going to be the decision. Messi love working with one another. They're great pals off the pitch, those two. Rakitic, Suarez, wonderful move! It's just absolutely glorious! Suarez, keeping the ball. That's a great advantage play. Here's Neymar, in to make it 3-0. He does! Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Teams of Our Lives with me, Marcus Speller, and him, Andy Brassel. Hello. This sounds like it should have some tropical soundtrack or something. It's Maybe it does 80s, 80s daytime TV, and I mean that in the most <laughs> complimentary sense possible. <laughs> Do you not think this is a bit more prime time than that? Uh, what, look, if you're knocking Pebble Mill, get out. I'm not having yeah. it, okay? Pebble this is the ultimate mill. compliment as far as I'm concerned. That's very true. Well, look, we, we, um, we've got another great team for you today, of course, and we've been enjoying these teams of our lives. But this team is quite a special one, Andy. And we don't even go back that far to talk about this team because we're going only to 2014-15. It's Luis Enrique's Barca side that won the treble. They certainly did. And rarely, I think, has such a great team looked so fantastic as you say such a short time afterwards um because as we speak this is the the last time that barcelona won the champions league it's the last mm. time that they came close to winning the champions league even and yeah. um i think it's one of those teams where a, a little bit like pep guardiola's first barcelona treble winners in in, in 2009 I think a lot of people casually look at them and think, well, yeah, of course they won the treble. And, uh, you know, of, of course that coach um, won the treble. He just happened to be in charge while they were doing it. Um, but there's mm. loads more to it than that. Um, not quite to the same extent as, as Guardiola. Um, Luis Enrique inherited quite a difficult situation. Um, Barcelona yeah. were... Um, I mean, they they nearly won the league in, in in 2014. Of course, they were they were beaten by um, uh, Atletico to the title um, when Atletico and Diego Godin came and got that famous goal at the Camp Nou on the the, the final um, day of the season. Mm. But th th there were a lot of difficulties. Uh, Tata Martino never really settled as a coach. Um, they'd had a few years of difficulty after the, the illness to Tito Villanova, the former um, assistant to Pep Guardiola, who then um, had to withdraw from the job um, after his, his, his illness returned and, of course, tragically died uh, uh, eventually. Martino was thought of as Messi's pick and it didn't go particularly well from there. I don't think he was a particularly great cultural fit for Barcelona. And Luis Enrique was always a really interesting one because people associate him so closely with Barcelona, but 
he wasn't a Guardiola. You know, bear in mind he was one of these players who made the Real Madrid Barcelona move. Um, he was a Real Madrid player first, um, having been a, a Gijon boy and a Studian, and um, became a Barca legend as a as a player, and then went away and and did his stuff as a as a coach as well. He, he had that season at Roma, which you know some Roma fans look at with a, a deal of disdain and others look at it and think here's a man who's stuck by his principles in a tough situation and really developed the team in a way he wanted to and maybe it would have gone somewhere else if we'd have stayed on beyond that season um the job he did at Celta Vigo really got him in the frame for the for the Barcelona job um with uh and by his side and from from there it almost became a sort of inevitability that he would get the Barcelona job. But I think if you go back to the beginning, look at him as a player and the fact that he became a Barcelona mainstay, but came from outside the tent. I think that's a very, very important theme when you look at the regeneration of Barcelona in, in, in 2014, how he was able to do that. Obviously he was financially backed. There's, there's no doubt about that, but I think, the perfect mix really that Luis Enrique had of being totally accustomed to Barcelona's traditions and expectations, but not died in the wall from cradle to camp. No, I I think that's, that's a very, very important Mm -hmm. um, thing to bear in mind when you look at his take on the sort of football that Barcelona Mm -hmm. should be playing from his view and the sort of football that he did get them playing. Yeah, I know. I, Obviously, agree with you. I mean, and and just on that, I think just to give a very, very, very quick um, sort of history of Barcelona in, in recent years. You know, there have been peaks and troughs at Barcelona in the last they 30 have. years. Um, I mean, from 1974 under Renus Mikkels until 1985 under El Tel Terry Venables, they didn't win the El league, Tell. which is quite a long time. A few years later, Johan Cruyff obviously brought them to what we think of Barcelona now, he won the European Cup and a number of league titles and so on. Then after him was was Louis van Gaal, won a couple of league titles. It was a few years of not much. Frank Rijkaard came along and got them going again. And then his time faded to the point of Guardiola really had to kind of pick them up again and sort the wheat from the chaff and took them to the highest of heights. He was exhausted, of course, when, when he finished there. Yeah. But that glow from... from from that Guardiola team really was, was there was still a little bit of glow there, of course. And I mean, really now what we're seeing fast forward to the present day is that glow really, if it's not already gone out, it's, it's pretty much, I mean, Messi is the only one who's, who's really, it made PK and Jordi Alba, maybe one or two others as well. It's gone but, out. You could say it's gone out. Yeah. Okay. Fair, <laughs> fair. Yeah. But, but you know, and, and, and as you mentioned, you know, the late, Tito uh, Villanova came in and won them the league with the help of Jordi Ruhr, of course. Uh, but they were soundly beaten by Bayern Munich in the semi-final of the Champions League that season, which sort of signalled the end of Pep's team, as it were. And you can talk about the influence and that and that glow that I mentioned. And and really, it wasn't until Luis Enrique came along which he, which he got that going again. But we should say as well, going a year or two without a league title or a cup is a bad period for a club like Barcelona in the modern era. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I think you can see the 
change of expectation being Ricardo and Ronaldinho. Now mm. that is a different pod that um, well, you yeah. and Jonathan Wilson would conduct over a period of probably three weeks rather than twenty five <laughs> minutes. Oh, but... the, the curious case of Frank Rankard's managerial career. <laughs> Here we go. It's one of Here my favourite things in football. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think you made a really excellent point in bringing up the defeat to Bayern Munich in the the, the twenty thirteen uh, Champions League semi final because. I think you look at those games and particularly that actually the first leg when they wheel out Messi, but not really Messi. He's there mm. in body, but the spirit's not quite there. And I don't mean that in any um, criticism of him that, that he didn't make an effort, not at all, but he just physically wasn't up to it. So though it was Messi on the pitch, it was really a, a poor photo stat of him. And, and this was the point at which, I guess people started to realise that he couldn't go on bearing the, the attacking load all, all on his own and and be in the fulcrum. And that for a player of his age, he had a lot of miles on the clock and they needed to find a way to take the edge off basically all that work that he was having to do for the team, all that work that he wanted to do with the team. You know, like Cristiano Ronaldo before him and Harry Kane after him. He never wanted to rest. And Mm -hmm. that became an issue. That became a a, a real issue for him. And when you you see him sort of schlepping about the pitch as they're absolutely slammed by Bayern Munich, you think, right, they have to do something. So whereas Barcelona were criticised for going out and, and spending a fortune on two forward players in particular afterwards, and some of that's done with hindsight. And I think you look at their financial position at the moment it's clear they've made a lot of bad decisions in the in the transfer market I don't think Neymar and Luis Suarez are among them even though there are <laughs> financial aspects to both of those and particularly the Neymar deal that that, that still hang over the club a, a, a little bit but in signing Neymar in 2013 and then for Luis Enrique's team uh, Luis Suarez in in 2014 this created something new. Now, I know everyone thinks of MSN as the, the, the perfect complementary front three, and we'll go into that a bit more in a bit, I'm sure. But the main thing that they did oh, yeah. is they took the physical burden from Messi. And that was something that was hugely important in making sure um, he was able to continually reach his best, to take some of the pressure off him, to make sure if he was playing all the games, he, he wasn't making an unreal amount of effort and that someone else would do his his running for him. Because I think when we talk about Neymar, it's quite easy to forget like how hardworking he is, how committed he is, yeah. how much he puts into every single game. It is unreal. And, and people don't really associate that with Neymar because they have a particular Instagram image of him. But it's, it's why he was so important to this team. But do you not think also, though, that, that Neymar, that move to PSG, a lot of people, casual football fans like us, there was... I was talking about this earlier with a mate of mine, actually. There was a bit of disappointment that he went to PSG in that, you know, he was he was so good at Barcelona and he had that front three. And and people, therefore, thought, oh, it was just, just ego and all the rest of it. And nobody thinks of egotistical footballers. Whether that's right or wrong assumption, mm. that's a different thing. But people don't think really of egotistical footballers who are very flashy and skillful and brilliant as being hardworking. It doesn't really fit with the stereotype people attach to them. It's a bit like Cristiano Ronaldo. People don't think of him as a 
Well, maybe they do. Maybe with Ronaldo, that's not actually no. I think he's probably <laughs> he's given no one any choice to think about that. Actually, I should say. <laughs> um, but with some players, uh, they think they're oh, a bit flashy, and and again, that ego kind of gets in the way of some of the attributes they they have. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And I think if you go um, back to English football, I think you look at David Beckham, and he never gets yep. the credit really for yeah. the fact that he's one of the most hard-working mm-hmm. English footballers of, of the last 20 years, that if you compare his talent to his Manchester United colleagues like Skulls and, and Giggs, there, there really is no comparison. But he just gave mm-hmm. everything. He was a different type of player. But because of the media view of him, because of the view of him as a, a, a personality, he never really gets the credit for that. And until like latter years, he never really got the unconditional love from... English football fans that he really should have done. In fact, maybe maybe he never really did full stop because I think it was more mm. English and British society falling in love with him rather than necessarily just football fans. But if, if we take it back to hard workers, I mean, Luis Suarez, the amount of running he was able to do yeah. were going back, well, six and a half mm. years ago mm. now. It was absolutely incredible. And even though they, they paid through the nose for him. He's just relentless. Oh, unbelievable. What a pain. In in a way, like Samuel Etu, Samuel Etu was relentless. You Mm. know, people don't realise sometimes how important Samuel Etu was in Raikard's Barcelona and in in that first season with with Guardiola, of course. The pressing, the example he showed from the front. And Suarez is like that. If you're a defender, you do not get a second's rest against those guys. Yeah, I I would agree. And... um... They did click together brilliantly. I, I thought they were absolutely fantastic together, these three. And, um, you know, once you get to the Champions League final um, in, in Berlin against Juventus, yes, um, you look at that and I think it's really interesting to see throughout that game the sort of positions that that Messi picks up. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we we know it's the last match of Xavi's Barcelona career. Yeah, and it yeah. Short, sort of almost should have been. It was. It, it felt at the time like Messi was signalling, "I'm going to take over from you, mate," because he was dropping into those deep <laughs> positions. He was picking up the ball on the, the center circle, and of course, he's still got enough in him to surge past players and stuff. I mean, he's only 27 years old at that point, um, Messi. But th- there was a sense of you know we talked about sparing his efforts, reimagining his role. I think that was mm-hmm. that was part of it and that he had those players to run beyond him. And of course, we've, we think of the players running beyond him. We think of Neymar and Suarez. It was also Ivan Rakitic, who was absolutely vital in this season. Yeah, um, One of the signings of not just Barcelona's season, but the European season, he was, he was absolutely terrific for them. Played a huge part in the getting to the Champions League final in the first place and winning the league and of course got the opening goal in the final which was the earliest goal that Barcelona yeah. had ever scored in a Champions League final yeah well it was nice I mean we should you know if I may you know talk about the um I kind of go back to the start of the season when they made some of the signings and and mm. so on the captain Carlos Piol announced his retirement from from football after 15 years with the first team at Barcelona he'd been in the club been with the club since his youth team playing days which yeah. began in about 1995 so a huge player going there you can't understate that Xavi it was clear that it was going to be his last season 
So there was a lot of change there. You also had Victor, Victor Valdez. Val- yeah. Yes, Victor Valdez, yeah, moved on. And even the subkeeper, Jose Pinto, moved on. Cesc Fabregas was sold to Chelsea. Alexis Sanchez went to Arsenal. Even Bojan Kerkic joined them in the Premier League, went to Stoke City, of course. Um, so you had quite a lot of change going on. And, and in came two new goalkeepers in the form of Mark andre Testegen, who's still there, of course, and Claudio Bravo. And I found, and of course you had Rakitic and Suarez, other big signings as well, but the goalkeeping situation, Andy, was an interesting one with Luis Enrique deploying Bravo for the league games and Testegen for the cup games. Now, we'd seen this before, once or twice. I think, I think Mourinho had done it. Um, was it Mourinho or would it have been Zidane? Mourinho maybe uh, at Real Madrid with Casillas for Chamazie. Obviously, he didn't sort of get on well with Ancelotti. Oh, was it Ancelotti, was it? Mm. Yeah, okay. Uh, and so we'd, we'd seen that. But really it was, because obviously they went on and won it. Um, I mean, Bravo didn't feature in one league match and Stegen didn't feature uh, in, 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 in one Sorry, I should rephrase that, actually. There was one league match in which uh, Bravo didn't feature and there was one cup match in which Testegen didn't feature. Yeah. So Jordi Massip, the third choice, came in on those occasions. It just showed you how he was so distinctive with where the goalkeepers should place. I find that quite interesting because with a team like Barcelona, sometimes which goalkeeper you've got in there is actually... It can influence the style of play more. Bravo, obviously... Guardiola liked him, sort of played with his feet. Um, didn't seem to stop much when he came to the Premier League. I remember Luke saying he just doesn't save anything, which is a bit <laughs> of a problem. But we should say that he did set a La Liga record uh, in 2014-15, going yeah. 630 minutes without conce- conceding, which surpassed the previous record held by Barcelona goalkeeper Pedro Artola in 1978. Um, but anyway, I'm waffling on a bit here. But the goalkeeping situation, Andy, what was your take on that? Um, well, it was something that could never last, and mm-hmm. um, they, neither of them were that happy with it. Um, and of, of course, in the end, this elicited the departure of the more senior goalkeeper, Claudio Bravo, because uh, to Stegen, who's never been backwards in coming forwards, just said, look, if you want to keep me, I've got to play all the games. And that, that, that was that, really. He made his play, and he, he got what he wanted. Um, but Claudio Bravo was really, really good in this league season. You're right to point out the... The, the clean sheets. And what I think is quite interesting is, and what I think worked quite well for Barcelona is the fact that they're both very Barcelona goalkeepers. You, you can't have a Barcelona goalkeeper who stays mm. on his line, you, you know? And I, I remember when uh, Hugo Lloris arrived at, at Tottenham. Could Joe Hart play for Barcelona, Andy? He could do. I'm not sure if he could do it that successfully, um, but of, of okay. course okay. they've, they're in a different place at the moment. Who knows? Who knows where it's going next? <laughs> it's not going into a place where they can sell to Stegen because no one will take his wages. But I think, I see. Is yeah, is 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 interesting when um, Hugo Lloris arrived at Tottenham. How there was this rotation between him and Brad Friedel, which was crazy because Lloris was very modern and off his line, and. Brad Friedel never went beyond the six-yard line, really. So that was an enormous adjustment for the team. You didn't have to do that between Bravo and Tostegen. The difference was, I guess, that Bravo was someone who was already hugely successful in La Liga, successful with Chile, um, already could communicate. I think that was important as well. I think the language is super important when you're a goalkeeper, more more perhaps than any other player. Yeah. Um, 
and it kind of eased mm-hmm. to Stegen in because he did have that wobble at the beginning. You remember the second match of the Champions League campaign where they played away at Paris Saint-Germain, lost 3-2, and Stegen was all over the mm. shop. Yeah, he had a terrible game and dropped, dropped a couple of huge bollocks in that game. Whereas by the time they got to the final... He was he was a really really important player in that win over Juventus because you think about um, how Barcelona came out of the traps really quickly in the final. Juve came back back quite strongly in the second half, and um, you know a even good they, Juventus side as well. Yeah, they they were. I mean, they were a bit greener in terms of playing at the very top of Champions League competition, and I think that was what really made the difference in the end. As you say, very very talented. And they moved on quickly after that final, of course, because, you know, they had that, um, they had Tevez, they had that midfield of uh, Pirlo, Vidal, Pogba, and it, and it all gradually came apart. Like Pogba was left on his own for a bit and ended up in, in, inheriting the number 10 shirt. But um, I, th- I think the underrated player, we talked about all the big signings. I think it's really interesting when you think that it was... Um, the start of the the Bartomeu reign at Barcelona, and now he's like completely discredited. Obviously, yeah. At the time, you you think of the signing of Suarez, but Tostegan mm-hmm. is a great signing. Jeremy Mathieu is a really good signing in that summer. A, a I'm play- glad you mentioned him. A actually, he's who's... often a bit slightly derided, but he. Well, well, he he wasn't he wasn't Barcelona quality by the end, but he certainly was at the beginning. He was really good in this season. And I think he filled in. Well, I think he played a lot of games. He played a lot of games, and I, I think yeah. the important thing with him is he was. People think of him as a solid, not flashy defender. He's a proper footballer. He played on. Mm. He played left back. He played left wing. He played midfield earlier in his career. He played all over the shop and was someone who was. It was good Andy, on the ball. I enjoyed seeing him. I enjoyed seeing him playing for Sporting once in the sunshine of Lisbon. <laughs> I can't remember who it was against, but it was so lovely to see him there. He's having a lovely time. Bruno he Fernandes had, was the best player on the pitch. He had a wonderful time there. He had an absolutely wonderful time there. <laughs> but I, I, th- I think it's interesting because you can see, still see, Barcelona doing relatively sensible business here. And there's not that many times that you can say that. Mm. Now, Luis Enrique, we know who's a a slightly more direct coach. And that definitely worked for Spain when he took over uh, post-World Cup 2018. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact that he's someone who's quite, yeah. he's quite short, he's quite brutal in the way that he he talks to people. Yeah. Um, but that directness yeah, comes off in the football. The and, in Spain, and Barcelona needed to mm-hmm. move on from that as, as, as well. They needed to move on from that um, Tata Martino period. Obviously, the fact that he did have that front three really helped. But Rakitic, again, someone from outside the circle, a different type of midfield player, a midfield player who'd been brought up in several different contexts, who was who played for Croatia, mm-hmm. but came through Swiss academies, who played different midfield positions in yeah. German football, who had this kind of finishing school at Sevilla in La Liga before he ended up at, at Barcelona. Someone with different ideas, different perspectives on the game. I think all of that, really, really helped. And when we talk about Barcelona's transfer business and how it worked, I mean, you talked about some of the turnover, some of the departures, the money they got for Sesc and for Alexis, two players who they wanted to get rid of, and they got the thick end of, what, 75 million mm. for, for for selling yeah. those two, which was, which was very, very nice indeed. I mean, if you talk about all that now and compare it to modern Barcelona, it's almost as if 25 years of have passed both in terms of on the pitch and off the pitch. 
it's madness. It's absolute madness, and it's a good point to make. And I mean, yes, you know, this this was only kind of sort of five six years ago or, or, or whatever, but it it seems a world away. I mean, you think just to throw in some more stats, you know, Messi, Neymar, Suarez, you know. Oh, by the way, Pedro's often forgotten about. He did play 50 matches or feature in 50 matches that season. Mm. One can forget that he played his part. He chipped him with 11 goals. But he is eclipsed rather when, you know, which is rather understandable when you remember Messi got 58, Neymar got 39, and Suarez bagged himself 25, which isn't too shabby at all. But I find it interesting, you know, you mentioned some of the midfielders there. Of the three midfielders that would be on the pitch at any one time, he only really used Iniesta, Rakitic, Busquets, Xavi and Rafinha that season. It was really just of, of those five midfielders. Very, very few appearances for anybody else who was who was occupying one of those three places. So the amount of football some of those players had played, you meant, said this with Messi, you know, he's 27, but he played an awful lot of football, regularly going mm. every season to, to the uh, latter stages of cup competitions and so on. Uh, you know, he was exhausted, but the, but, but, with all these goals and with all these great attacking players, something that I want to point out, you know, PK and Mascherano were his centre-halves, Danny Alves and Jordi Alba were the full-backs, you know, so it's a decent back line, to say the least. Real Madrid actually scored more goals than Barcelona in the league that season. They got 118 yeah. and Barcelona got 110. So, I mean, it's still, it's still very, very good. But Barcelona conceded just 21 goals in the league compared to Real Madrid's 38. That is phenomenal. And you don't think of this side being, you think of the attacking uh, prowess, of course, but defensively, they were airtight. They were, and you don't think of Barcelona sides being physically strong either, but, mm. but they were, just not in a six foot four, <laughs> 16 stone of muscle kind of way. You know, the, the, the amount of work that those guys got through is unbelievable. And they're so relentlessly consistent in the closing part of the season. I mean, if you look at their, their last league defeat is in February uh, when they lost to Malaga. And after that, I think they drop like four or six points between mid-February and, and, and the end of the season. And one of those uh, is, is the final day draw against Depor when, when they won the league anyway. Um and of yeah. course, we talked about them losing the title right at the end of last the, the, the last season, 2013-2014, against Atletico Madrid. And then they go and win the title at the Calderon. And that was yeah. a huge moment for them. They became the first European side to win the treble twice. Mm. And I think trebles have become a bit of a regular occurrence in these past sort of 10 to 15 years, they have. Uh, roughly. Uh, uh, and and, and it, we shouldn't just kind of go, oh, yeah, they won the treble. It is a monumental achievement. And I understand that um, because of the money and, you know, the handful of elite clubs in European football these days, it is a different uh, uh, sort of landscape to what it was um, years ago. But still, you shouldn't take away the achievements of a side who have won a treble because Bayern have won it twice. The, they've, they've achieved the treble twice, both coming quite recently, of course. But before Barca and Bayern, you know, it was it was Celtic in the sixties did it. In fact, they won more than three. There was quadruple, I think, or whatever it was. Ajax in the seventies, PSV in the eighties, Manchester United in the nineties. Then, since two thousand and nine, you've had Barcelona twice, Bayern twice, and Inter. So it used to be once a decade. And now in the last, as I say, short while, we've had a sort of a concentration of these trebles, which does show you how the, the landscape has sort of shifted. But still, it's a phenomenal achievement. It really, really is. Um, and 
I would like to also point out that just a little nod that in, in, in Luis Enrique's second season, they won the league and cup, but were knocked out narrowly by Atletico Madrid in, in the Champions League quarterfinals. And then in his final season there, Real Madrid actually, you know, they, they won the league, but they did win the cup. Uh, and it was it was Juventus that beat them uh, in the quarterfinals of the Champions League after that um, incredible comeback against PSG. And I want to mention the comeback against PSG, Andy, before we kind of wrap up on this. Because it, as, as Miguel Delaney said in a piece that he wrote quite recently, it was like Luis Enrique's last stand mm. as Barcelona manager. And, 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 and Miguel said that it was almost like that was a trophy win for them. Well, they knew he was off by that point mm. as, as, as well. That's something we should say. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think to, to have a night of that sort of high drama and excitement, and yes, they had plenty of luck along the way as well. Uh, that, that was something that was one of the unforgettable moments of the, the Luis Enrique era. But, you know, I think there are, there are so many things that colored the Luis Enrique period at, at Barcelona. And bear in mind, he could have been gone by autumn in yeah. that first season when they, <laughs> yeah. they lost the, they lost the Clasico to Real Madrid. He had a row with yeah. Messi. And at that point he was on really thin ice. So for, to get from that to the treble is extraordinary. But, you know, we talked about Neymar at the beginning. For me, Neymar was always the most Luis Enrique player in this team. Someone of not just high skill, but someone whose strength of will would just simply like batter through obstacles and that's something that's not often acknowledged about Neymar as as, as we said before I, th- I think he's he's taken he's, he's taken wrong and misrepresented in a, in a in a lot of ways but that night against PSG okay they had referee and help okay PSG shrunk into their shells but Neymar was absolutely phenomenal that night and I felt that he was a real manifestation of as you say, the, the the last embers of the the Luis Enrique reign. Indeed, Andy. It's been a bloody pleasure talking about this one. Yes. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, but sometimes the recent ones can also stir the passions and uh, and and you know rekindle one's love for uh, for some marvellous moments uh, from the history of football. So there we are, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for listening to the teams of our lives. Andy, pleasure as always, my good man. A pleasure. Uh, We'll see you next week for another one of these. Lots of love. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.